Recording by Matt Saw. The People of the Abyss Suddenly a change came over the face of things. A tingle of excitement ran along the air. Automobiles fled past, two, three, a dozen, and from them warnings were shouted to us. One of the machines swerved wildly at high speed half a block down, and the next moment already left well behind it, the pavement was torn into a great hole by a bursting bomb. We saw the police disappearing down the cross streets on the run, and knew that something terrible was coming. We could hear the rising roar of it. "'Our brave comrades are coming,' Harman said. We could see the front of their column filling the street from gutter to gutter as the last war automobile fled past. The machine stopped for a moment just abreast of us. A soldier leapt from it, carrying something carefully in his hands. This, with the same care, he deposited in the gutter. Then he leapt back to his seat, and the machine dashed on, took the turn at the corner, and was gone from sight. Hartman ran to the gutter and stooped over the object. "'Keep back,' he warned me. I could see he was working rapidly with his hands. When he returned to me, the sweat was heavy on his forehead. "'I disconnected it,' he said, and just in the nick of time. The soldier was clumsy. He intended it for our comrades, but he didn't give it enough time. It would have exploded prematurely. Now it won't explode at all.' Everything was happening rapidly now. Across the street and half a block down, high up in a building, I could see heads peering out. I had just pointed them out to Hartman when a sheet of flame and smoke ran along that portion of the face of the building where the heads had appeared, and the air was shaken by the explosion. In places, the stone facing of the building was torn away, exposing the iron construction beneath. The next moment, similar sheets of flame and smoke smote the front of the building across the street opposite it. Between the explosions, we could hear the rattle of the automatic pistols and rifles. For several minutes, this mid-air battle continued, then died out. It was patent that our comrades were in one building, that mercenaries were in the other, and that they were fighting across the street. But we could not tell which was which, which building contained our comrades, and which the mercenaries. By this time, the column on the street was almost on us. As the front of it passed under the warring buildings, both went into action again, one building dropping bombs into the street, being attacked from across the street, and in return replying to that attack. Thus we learned which building was held by our comrades, and they did good work, saving those in the street from the bombs of the enemy. Hartman gripped my arm and dragged me into a wide entrance. "'They're not our comrades!' he shouted in my ear. The inner doors to the entrance were locked and bolted. We could not escape. The next moment the front of the column went by. It was not a column, but a mob, an awful river that filled the street, the people of the abyss, mad with drink and wrong, up at last and roaring for the blood of their masters. I had seen the people of the abyss before, gone through its ghettos, and thought I knew it. But I found that I was now looking on it for the first time. Dumb apathy had vanished. It was now dynamic, a fascinating spectacle of dread. It surged past my vision in concrete waves of wrath, snarling and growling, carnivorous, drunk with whiskey from pillaged warehouses, drunk with hatred, drunk with lust for blood, men, women, and children in rags and tatters, dim, ferocious intelligences, with all the godlike blotted from their features, and all the fiendlike stamped in, apes and tigers, anemic consumptives, and great hairy beasts of burden, one faces from which vampire society had sucked the juice of life, bloated forms swollen with physical grossness and corruption, withered hags and death's heads bearded like patriarchs, festering youth and festering age, faces of fiends, crooked, twisted, misshapen monsters, blasted with the ravages of disease and all the horrors of chronic innutrition, the refuse and the scum of life, a raging, screaming, screeching, demoniacal horde.
And why not? The people of the abyss had nothing to lose but the misery and pain of living. And to gain? Nothing, save one final, awful glut of vengeance. And as I looked, the thought came to me that in that rushing stream of human lava were men, comrades and heroes, whose mission had been to rouse the abysmal beast and to keep the enemy occupied in coping with it. And now a strange thing happened to me. A transformation came over me. The fear of death, for myself and for others, left me. I was strangely exalted, another being in another life. Nothing mattered. The cause for this one time was lost, but the cause would be here tomorrow, the same cause, ever fresh and ever burning. And thereafter, in the orgy of horror that raged through the succeeding hours, I was able to take a calm interest. Death meant nothing. Life meant nothing. I was an interested spectator of events, and sometimes swept on by the rush, was myself a curious participant. For my mind had leapt to a star-cool altitude and grasped a passionless transvaluation of values. Had it not done this, I know that I should have died. Half a mile of the mob had swept by when we were discovered. A woman in fantastic rags, with cheeks cavernously hollow and with narrow black eyes like burning gimlets, caught a glimpse of Hartman and me. She let out a shrill shriek and bore in upon us. A section of the mob tore itself loose and surged in after her. I can see her now, as I write these lines, a leap in advance, her grey hair flying in thin tangled strings, the blood dripping down her forehead from some wound in the scalp, in her right hand a hatchet, her left hand lean and wrinkled, a yellow talon, gripping the air convulsively. Hartman sprang in front of me. This was no time for explanations. We were well dressed and that was enough. His fist shot out, striking the woman between her burning eyes. The impact of the blow drove her backward, but she struck the wall of her oncoming fellows and bounced forward again, dazed and helpless, the brandished hatchet falling feebly on Hartman's shoulder. The next moment I knew not what was happening. I was overborne by the crowd. The confined space was filled with shrieks and yells and curses. Blows were falling on me. Hands were ripping and tearing at my flesh and garments. I felt that I was being torn to pieces. I was being borne down, suffocated. Some strong hand gripped my shoulder in the thick of the press and was dragging fiercely at me. Between pain and pressure, I fainted. Hartman never came out of that entrance. He had shielded me and received the first brunt of the attack. This had saved me, for the jam had quickly become too dense for anything more than the mad gripping and tearing of hands. I came to in the midst of wild movement. All about me was the same movement. I had been caught up in a monstrous flood that was sweeping me I knew not whither. Fresh air was on my cheek and biting sweetly in my lungs. Faint and dizzy, I was vaguely aware of a strong arm around my body under the arms, and half lifting me and dragging me along. Feebly, my own limbs were helping me. In front of me, I could see the moving back of a man's coat. It had been slit from top to bottom along the center seam, and it pulsed rhythmically, the slit opening and closing regularly with every leap of the wearer. This phenomenon fascinated me for a time, while my senses were coming back to me. Next, I became aware of stinging cheeks and nose, and could feel blood dripping on my face. My hat was gone. My hair was down and flying, and from the stinging of the scalp I managed to recollect a hand in the press of the entrance that had torn at my hair. My chest and arms were bruised and aching in a score of places. My brain grew clearer, and I turned as I ran and looked at the man who was holding me up. He it was who had dragged me out and saved me. He noticed my movement. "'It's all right,' he shouted hoarsely. "'I knew you on the instant.' 
I failed to recognize him. But before I could speak, I trod upon something that was alive and that squirmed under my foot. I was swept on by those behind and could not look down and see, and yet I knew that it was a woman who had fallen and who was being trampled into the pavement by thousands of successive feet. "'It's all right,' he repeated. "'I'm Garthwaite.' He was bearded and gaunt and dirty, but I succeeded in remembering him as the stalwart youth that had spent several months in our Glen Ellen refuge three years before. He passed me the signals of the Iron Heel's secret service, in token that he, too, was in its employ. "'I'll get you out of this as soon as I can get a chance,' he assured me. "'But watch your footing. On your life, don't stumble and go down.' All things happened abruptly on that day, and with an abruptness that was sickening, the mob checked itself. It came in violent collision with a large woman in front of me. The man with the split coat had vanished, while those behind collided against me. A devilish pandemonium reigned, shrieks, curses, and cries of death, while above all rose the churning rattle of machine-guns and the putter-putt-putter-putt of rifles. At first I could make out nothing. People were falling about me right and left. The woman in front doubled up and went down, her hands on her abdomen in a frenzied clutch. A man was quivering against my legs in a death struggle. It came to me that we were at the head of the column. Half a mile of it had disappeared, where or how I never learned. To this day I do not know what became of that half-mile of humanity, whether it was blotted out by some frightful bolt of war, whether it was scattered and destroyed piecemeal, or whether it escaped. But there we were, at the head of the column instead of in its middle, and we were being swept out of life by a torrent of shrieking lead. As soon as death had thinned the jam, Garthwaite, still grasping my arm, led a rush of survivors into the wide entrance of an office building. Here, at the rear, against the doors, we were pressed by a panting, gasping mass of creatures. For some time we remained in this position without a change in the situation. "'I did it beautifully,' Garthwaite was lamenting to me. "'Ran you right into a trap. We had a gambler's chance in the street, but in here there is no chance at all. It's all over but the shouting. Vive la Revolution!' Then, what he expected, began. The mercenaries were killing without quarter. At first the surge back upon us was crushing, but as the killing continued the pressure was eased. The dead and dying went down and made room. Garthwaite put his mouth to my ear and shouted, but in the frightful din I could not catch what he said. He did not wait. He seized me and threw me down. Next he dragged a dying woman over on top of me, and with much squeezing and shoving crawled in beside me and partly over me. A mound of dead and dying began to pile up over us, and over this mound, pawing and moaning, crept those that still survived. But these two soon ceased, and a semi-silence settled down, broken by groans and sobs and sounds of strangulation. I should have been crushed had it not been for Garthwaite. As it was, it seemed inconceivable that I could bear the weight I did and live. And yet, outside of pain, the only feeling I possessed was one of curiosity. How was it going to end? What would death be like? Thus did I receive my red baptism in that Chicago shambles. Prior to that, death to me had been a theory. But ever afterward, death had been a simple fact that does not matter. It is so easy. But the mercenaries were not content with what they had done. They invaded the entrance, killing the wounded and searching out the unhurt that, like ourselves, were playing dead. I remember one man they dragged out of a heap, who pleaded abjectly until a revolver shot cut him short. Then there was a woman who charged from a heap, snarling and shooting. She fired six shots before they got her, though what damage she did we could not know. We could follow these tragedies only by the sound. Every little while flurries like this occurred, each flurry culminating in the revolver shot that put an end to it. 
In the intervals we could hear the soldiers talking and swearing as they rummaged among the carcasses, urged on by their officers to hurry up. At last they went to work on our heap, and we could feel the pressure diminish as they dragged away the dead and wounded. Garthwaite began uttering aloud the signals. At first he was not heard. Then he raised his voice. "'Listen to that,' we heard a soldier say, and next the sharp voice of an officer. "'Hold on there. Careful as you go.' Oh, that first breath of air as we were dragged out. Garthwaite did the talking at first, but I was compelled to undergo a brief examination to prove service with the iron heel. "'Agent provocateur, all right.' was the officer's conclusion. He was a beardless young fellow, a cadet, evidently, of some great oligarch family. "'It's a hell of a job,' Garthwaite grumbled. "'I'm going to try and resign and get into the army. You fellows have a snap.' "'You've earned it,' was the young officer's answer. "'I've got some pull, and I'll see if it can be managed. I can tell them how I found you.' He took Garthwaite's name and number, and then turned to me. "'And you?' "'Oh, I'm going to be married,' I answered lightly, "'and then I'll be out of it all.' And so we talked, while the killing of the wounded went on. It is all a dream now, as I look back on it, but at the time it was the most natural thing in the world. Garthwaite and the young officer fell into an animated conversation over the difference between so-called modern warfare and the present street fighting and skyscraper fighting that was taking place all over the city. I followed them intently, fixing up my hair at the same time and pinning together my torn skirts, and all the time the killing of the wounded went on. Sometimes the revolver shots drowned the voices of Garthwaite and the officer, and they were compelled to repeat what they had been saying. I lived through three days of the Chicago Commune, and the vastness of it and of the slaughter may be imagined when I say that in all that time I saw practically nothing outside the killing of the people of the abyss and the mid-air fighting between skyscrapers. I really saw nothing of the heroic work done by the comrades. I could hear the explosions of their mines and bombs and see the smoke of their conflagrations. And that was all. The mid-air part of one great deed I saw, however, and that was the balloon attacks made by our comrades on the fortresses. That was on the second day. The three disloyal regiments had been destroyed in the fortresses to the last man. The fortresses were crowded with mercenaries. The wind blew in the right direction, and up went our balloons from one of the office buildings in the city. Now Biedenbach, after he left Glen Ellen, had invented a most powerful explosive. Expedite, he called it. This was the weapon the balloons used. They were only hot air balloons, clumsily and hastily made, but they did the work. I saw it all from the top of an office building. The first balloon missed the fortresses completely and disappeared into the country, but we learned about it afterward. Burton and O'Sullivan were in it. As they were descending, they swept across a railroad directly over a troop train that was heading at full speed for Chicago. They dropped their whole supply of expedite upon the locomotive. The resulting wreck tied the line up for days. And the best of it was that, released from the weight of expedite, the balloon shot up into the air and did not come down for half a dozen miles, both heroes escaping unharmed. The second balloon was a failure. Its flight was lame. It floated too low and was shot full of holes before it could reach the fortresses. Herford and Guinness were in it, and they were blown to pieces along with the field into which they fell. Biedenbach was in despair. We heard all about it afterward, and he went up alone in the third balloon. He too made a low flight, but he was in luck, for they failed seriously to puncture his balloon. I can see it now, as I did then, from the lofty top of the building, that inflated bag drifting along the air, and that tiny speck of a man clinging on beneath. I could not see the fortress, but those on the roof with me said he was directly over it. I did not see the expedite fall when he cut it loose, but I did see the balloon suddenly leap up into the sky. 
An appreciable time after that, the great column of the explosion towered in the air, and after that, in turn, I heard the roar of it. Beaten back, the gentle had destroyed a fortress. Two other balloons followed at the same time. One was blown to pieces in the air, the expedite exploding, and the shock of it disrupted the second balloon, which fell prettily into the remaining fortress. It couldn't have been better planned, though the two comrades in it sacrificed their lives. But to return to the people of the abyss, my experiences were confined to them. They raged and slaughtered and destroyed all over the city proper, and were in turn destroyed. But never once did they succeed in reaching the city of the oligarchs over on the west side. The oligarchs had protected themselves well. No matter what destruction was wreaked in the heart of the city, they and their womenkind and children were to escape hurt. I am told that their children played in the parks during those terrible days, and that their favorite game was an imitation of their elders stamping upon the proletariat. But the mercenaries found it no easy task to cope with the people of the abyss, and at the same time fight with the comrades. Chicago was true to her traditions, and though a generation of revolutionists was wiped out, it took along with it pretty close to a generation of its enemies. Of course, the Iron Heel kept the figures secret, but at a very conservative estimate, at least 130,000 mercenaries were slain. But the comrades had no chance. Instead of the whole country being hand in hand in revolt, they were all alone, and the total strength of the oligarchy could have been directed against them if necessary. As it was, hour after hour, day after day, in endless trainloads, by hundreds of thousands, the mercenaries were hurled into Chicago. And there were so many of the people of the abyss. Tiring of the slaughter, a great herding movement was begun by the soldiers, the intent of which was to drive the street mobs like cattle into Lake Michigan. It was at the beginning of this movement that Garthwaite and I had encountered the young officer. This herding movement was practically a failure thanks to the splendid work of the comrades. Instead of the great host the mercenaries had hoped to gather together, they succeeded in driving no more than 40,000 of the wretches into the lake. Time and again, when a mob of them was well in hand and being driven along the streets to the water, the comrades would create a diversion, and the mob would escape through the consequent hole torn in the encircling net. Garthwaite and I saw an example of this shortly after meeting with a young officer. The mob of which we had been a part, and which had been put in retreat, was prevented from escaping to the south and east by strong bodies of troops. The troops we had fallen in with had held it back on the west. The only outlet was north, and north it went toward the lake, driven on from east and west and south by machine-gun fire and automatics. Whether it divined that it was being driven toward the lake, or whether it was merely a blind squirm of the monster, I do not know. But at any rate, the mob took a cross street to the west, turned down the next street, and came back upon its track, heading south toward the great ghetto. Garthwaite and I at that time were trying to make our way westward to get out of the territory of street fighting, and we were caught right in the thick of it again. As we came to the corner, we saw the howling mob bearing down upon us. Garthwaite seized my arm, and we were just starting to run, when he dragged me back from in front of the wheels of half a dozen war automobiles, equipped with machine guns, that were rushing for the spot. Behind them came the soldiers with their automatic rifles. By the time they took position, the mob was upon them, and it looked as though they would be overwhelmed before they could get into action. Here and there a soldier was discharging his rifle, but this scattered fire had no effect in checking the mob. On it came, bellowing with brute rage. It seemed the machine guns could not get started. The automobiles on which they were mounted blocked the street, compelling the soldiers to find positions in, between, and on the sidewalks. More and more soldiers were arriving, and in the jam we were unable to get away. Garthwaite held me by the arm, and we pressed close against the front of a building. 
The mob was no more than twenty-five feet away when the machine guns opened up. But before that flaming sheet of death, nothing could live. The mob came on, but it could not advance. It piled up in a heap, a mound, a huge and growing wave of dead and dying. Those behind urged on, and the column, from gutter to gutter, telescoped upon itself. Wounded creatures, men and women, were vomited over the top of that awful wave and fell squirming down the face of it, till they threshed about under the automobiles and against the legs of the soldiers. The latter bayoneted the struggling wretches, the one I saw who gained his feet and flew at a soldier's throat with his teeth. Together they went down, soldier and slave, into the welter. The firing ceased. The work was done. The mob had been stopped in its wild attempt to break through. Orders were being given to clear the wheels of the war machines. They could not advance over that wave of dead, and the idea was to run them down the cross street. The soldiers were dragging the bodies away from the wheels when it happened. We learned afterward how it happened. A block distant, a hundred of our comrades had been holding a building. Across roofs and through buildings they made their way, till they found themselves looking down upon the close-packed soldiers. Then it was a counter-massacre. Without warning, a shower of bombs fell from the top of the building. The automobiles were blown to fragments along with many soldiers. We, with the survivors, swept back in mad retreat. Half a block down, another building opened fire upon us. As the soldiers had carpeted the street with dead slaves, so in turn did they themselves become carpet. Garthwaite and I bore charmed lives. As we had done before, so again we sought shelter in an entrance. But he was not to be caught napping this time. As the roar of the bombs died away, he began peering out. "'The mob's coming back!' he called to me. "'We've got to get out of this!' We fled, hand in hand, down the bloody pavement, slipping and sliding and making for the corner. Down the cross street we could see a few soldiers still running. Nothing was happening to them. The way was clear. So we paused a moment and looked back. The mob came on slowly. It was busy arming itself with the rifles of the slain and killing the wounded. We saw the end of the young officer who had rescued us. He painfully lifted himself on his elbow and turned loose with his automatic pistol. There goes my chance of promotion, Garthwaite laughed, as a woman bore down on the wounded man, brandishing a butcher's cleaver. Come on, it's the wrong direction, but we'll get out somehow. And we fled eastward through the quiet streets, prepared at every cross street for anything to happen. To the south, a monster conflagration was filling the sky, and we knew that the great ghetto was burning. At last I sank down on the sidewalk. I was exhausted and could go no further. I was bruised and sore and aching in every limb, yet I could not escape smiling at Garthwaite, who was rolling a cigarette and saying, I know I'm making a mess of rescuing you, but I can't get head nor tail of the situation. It's all a mess. Every time we try to break out, something happens and we're turned back. We're only a couple of blocks now from where I got you out of that entrance. Friend and foe are all mixed up. It's chaos. You can't tell who is in those darn buildings. Try to find out and you get a bomb on your head. Try to go peaceably on your way, and you run into a mob and are killed by machine guns, or you run into the mercenaries and are killed by your own comrades from a roof. And on the top of it, all the mob comes along and kills you too. He shook his head dolefully, lighted his cigarette, and sat down beside me. And I'm that hungry, he added. I could eat cobblestones. The next moment, he was on his feet again, and out in the street, prying up a cobblestone. He came back with it and assaulted the window of a store behind us. It's ground floor and no good, he explained as he helped me through the hole he had made, but it's the best we can do. You get a nap, and I'll reconnoiter. I'll finish this rescue all right, but I want time. Time, lots of it, and something to eat. It was a harness store we found ourselves in, 
and he fixed me up a couch of horse blankets in the private office well to the rear. To add to my wretchedness, a splitting headache was coming on, and I was only too glad to close my eyes and try to sleep. "'I'll be back,' were his parting words. "'I don't hope to get an auto, but I'll surely bring some grub, anyway.' Note. Grub. Food. And that was the last I saw of Garthwaite for three years. Instead of coming back, he was carried away to a hospital with a bullet through his lungs and another through the fleshy part of his neck. End of chapter 23 Recording by Matt Saw Montreal MattSaw.org As I lay with my eyes closed, I heard the same dull sound of distant explosions. The inferno was still raging. I crept through the store to the front. The reflection from the sky of vast conflagrations made the street almost as light as day. One could have read the finest print with ease. From several blocks away came the crackle of small hand bombs and the churning of machine guns, and from a long way off came a long series of heavy explosions. I crept back to my horse blankets and slept again. When next I awoke, a sickly yellow light was filtering in on me. It was dawn of the second day. I crept to the front of the store. A smoke pole, shot through with lurid gleams, filled the sky. Down the opposite side of the street tottered a wretched slave. One hand he held tightly against his side, and behind him he left a bloody trail. His eyes roved everywhere, and they were filled with apprehension and dread. Once he looked straight across at me, and in his face was all the dumb pathos of the wounded and hunted animal. He saw me, but there was no kinship between us, and with him, at least, no sympathy of understanding. For he cowered perceptibly and dragged himself on. He could expect no aid in all God's world. He was a helot in the great hunt of helots that the masters were making. All he could hope for, all he sought, was some hole to crawl away in and hide like any animal. The sharp clang of a passing ambulance at the corner gave him a start. Ambulances were not for such as he. With a groan of pain, he threw himself into a doorway. A minute later, he was out again and desperately hobbling on. I went back to my horse blankets and waited an hour for Garthwaite. My headache had not gone away. On the contrary, it was increasing. It was by an effort of will only that I was able to open my eyes and look at objects. And with the opening of my eyes and the looking came intolerable torment. Also, a great pulse was beating in my brain. Weak and reeling, I went out through the broken window and down the street, seeking to escape, instinctively and gropingly, from the awful shambles. And thereafter, I lived nightmare. My memory of what happened in the succeeding hours is the memory one would have of nightmare. Many events are focused sharply on my brain, but between these indelible pictures I retain are intervals of unconsciousness. What occurred in those intervals I know not and never shall know. I remember stumbling at the corner over the legs of a man. It was the poor hunted wretch that had dragged himself past my hiding place. How distinctly do I remember his poor, pitiful, gnarled hands as he lay there on the pavement, hands that were more hoof and claw than hands, all twisted and distorted by the toil of all his days, with on the palms a horny growth of callus a half-inch thick. And as I picked myself up and started on, I looked into the face of the thing and saw that it still lived, for the eyes, dimly intelligent, were looking at me and seeing me. After that came a kindly blank. I knew nothing, saw nothing, merely tottered on in my quest for safety, 
My next nightmare vision was a quiet street of the dead. I came upon it abruptly, as a wanderer in the country would come upon a flowing stream. Only this stream I gazed upon did not flow. It was congealed in death. From pavement to pavement, and covering the sidewalks, it lay there, spread out quite evenly, with only here and there a lump or mound of bodies to break the surface. Poor, driven people of the abyss, hunted helots. They lay there as the rabbits in California after a drive. Note, in those days, so sparsely populated was the land that wild animals often became pests. In California, the custom of rabbit driving obtained. On a given day, all the farmers in the locality would assemble and sweep across the country in converging lines, driving the rabbits by scores of thousands into a prepared enclosure where they were clubbed to death by men and boys. Up the street and down I looked. There was no movement, no sound. The quiet buildings looked down upon the scene from their many windows, and once only I saw an arm that moved in that dead stream. I swear I saw it move, with a strange, writhing gesture of agony, and with it lifted a head, gory with nameless horror, that gibbered at me, and then lay down again, and moved no more. I remember another street, with quiet buildings on either side, and the panic that smote me into consciousness as again I saw the people of the abyss, but this time in a stream that flowed and came on. And then I saw there was nothing to fear. The stream moved slowly, while from it arose groans and lamentations, cursings, babblings of senility, hysteria, and insanity. For these were the very young and the very old, the feeble and the sick, the helpless and the hopeless, all the wreckage of the ghetto. The burning of the great ghetto on the south side had driven them forth into the inferno of the street fighting, and whither they wended and whatever became of them I did not know and never learned. Note. It was long a question of debate whether the burning of the Southside ghetto was accidental or whether it was done by the mercenaries. But it is definitely settled now that the ghetto was fired by the mercenaries under orders from their chiefs. I have faint memories of breaking a window and hiding in some shop to escape a street mob that was pursued by soldiers. Also, a bomb burst near me, once, in some still street, where, look as I would, up and down, I could see no human being. But my next sharp recollection begins with the crack of a rifle, and an abrupt becoming aware that I was being fired at by a soldier in an automobile. The shot missed, and the next moment I was screaming and motioning the signals. My memory of riding in the automobile is very hazy, though this ride, in turn, is broken by one vivid picture. The crack of the rifle of the soldier sitting beside me made me open my eyes, and I saw George Milford, whom I had known in the Pell Street days, sinking slowly down to the sidewalk. Even as he sank, the soldier fired again, and Milford doubled in, then flung his body out and fell sprawling. The soldier chuckled, and the automobile sped on. The next I knew after that, I was awakened out of a sound sleep by a man who walked up and down close beside me. His face was drawn and strained, and the sweat rolled down his nose from his forehead. One hand was clutched tightly against his chest by the other hand, and blood dripped down upon the floor as he walked. He wore the uniform of the mercenaries. From without, as through thick walls, came the muffled roar of bursting bombs. I was in some building that was locked in combat with some other building. A surgeon came in to dress the wounded soldier, and I learned that it was two in the afternoon. My headache was no better, and the surgeon paused from his work long enough to give me a powerful drug that would depress the heart and bring relief. I slept again, and the next I knew I was on top of the building. The immediate fighting had ceased, and I was watching the balloon attack on the fortresses. Someone had an arm around me, and I was leaning close against him. It came to me quite as a matter of course, 
that this was Ernest, and I found myself wondering how he had got his hair and eyebrows so badly singed. It was by the merest chance that we had found each other in that terrible city. He had had no idea that I had left New York, and coming through the room where I lay asleep could not at first believe that it was I. Little more I saw of the Chicago Commune. After watching the balloon attack, Ernest took me down into the heart of the building, where I slept the afternoon out and the night. The third day we spent in the building, and on the fourth, Ernest having got permission and an automobile from the authorities, we left Chicago. My headache was gone, but body and soul I was very tired. I lay back against Ernest in the automobile, and with apathetic eyes watched the soldiers trying to get the machine out of the city. Fighting was still going on, but only in isolated localities. Here and there whole districts were still in possession of the comrades, but such districts were surrounded and guarded by heavy bodies of troops. In a hundred segregated traps were the comrades thus held while the work of subjugating them went on. Subjugation meant death, for no quarter was given, and they fought heroically to the last man. Note. Numbers of the buildings held out over a week, while one held out eleven days. Each building had to be stormed like a fort, and the mercenaries fought their way upward floor by floor. It was deadly fighting. Quarter was neither given nor taken, and in the fighting the revolutionists had the advantage of being above. While the revolutionists were wiped out, the loss was not one-sided. The proud Chicago proletariat lived up to its ancient boast. For as many of itself as were killed, it killed that many of the enemy. Whenever we approached such localities, the guards turned us back and sent us around. Once, the only way past two strong positions of the comrades was through a burnt section that lay between. From either side we could hear the rattle and roar of war, while the automobile picked its way through smoking ruins and tottering walls. Often the streets were blocked by mountains of debris that compelled us to go around. We were in a labyrinth of ruin, and our progress was slow. The stockyards, ghetto, plant, and everything, were smoldering ruins. Far off to the right, a wide smoke haze dimmed the sky. The town of Pullman, the soldier chauffeur told us, or what had been the town of Pullman, for it was utterly destroyed. He had driven the machine out there with dispatches on the afternoon of the third day. Some of the heaviest fighting had occurred there, he said, many of the streets being rendered impassable by the heaps of the dead. Swinging around the shattered walls of a building in the stockyards district, the automobile was stopped by a wave of dead. It was for all the world like a wave tossed up by the sea. It was patent to us what had happened. As the mob charged past the corner, it had been swept at right angles and point-blank range by the machine guns drawn up on the cross street. But disaster had come to the soldiers. A chance bomb must have exploded among them, for the mob, checked until its dead and dying formed the wave, had white-capped and flung forward its foam of living fighting slaves. Soldiers and slaves lay together, torn and mangled, around and over the wreckage of the automobiles and guns. Ernest sprang out. A familiar pair of shoulders in a cotton shirt and a familiar fringe of white hair had caught his eye. I did not watch him, and it was not until he was back beside me and we were speeding on that he said, It was Bishop Morehouse. Soon we were in the green country, and I took one last glance back at the smoke-filled sky. Faint and far came the low thud of an explosion, and I turned my face against Ernest's breast and wept softly for the cause that was lost. Ernest's arm about me was eloquent with love. "'For this time lost, dear heart,' he said, "'but not forever. We have learned. "'Tomorrow the cause will rise again, "'strong with wisdom and discipline.' "'The automobile drew up at a railroad station. "'Here we would catch a train to New York. "'As we waited on the platform, 
Three trains thundered past, bound west to Chicago. They were crowded with ragged, unskilled laborers, people of the abyss. Slave levies for the rebuilding of Chicago, Ernest said. You see, the Chicago slaves are all killed. End of chapter 24 Recording by Matt Saw, Montreal, mattsaw.org Recording by Matt Saw The Terrorists It was not until Ernest and I were back in New York, and after weeks had elapsed, that we were able to comprehend thoroughly the full sweep of the disaster that had befallen the cause. The situation was bitter and bloody. In many places, scattered over the country, slave revolts and massacres had occurred. The role of the martyrs increased mightily. Countless executions took place everywhere. The mountains and waste regions were filled with outlaws and refugees who were being hunted down mercilessly. Our own refuges were packed with comrades who had prices on their heads. Through information furnished by its spies, scores of our refuges were raided by the soldiers of the Iron Heel. Many of the comrades were disheartened, and they retaliated with terroristic tactics. The setback to their hopes made them despairing and desperate. Many terrorist organizations unaffiliated with us sprang into existence and caused as much trouble. Note, the annals of this short-lived era of despair make bloody reading. Revenge was the ruling motive, and the members of the terroristic organizations were careless of their own lives and hopeless about the future. The Danites, taking their name from the avenging angels of the Mormon mythology, sprang up in the mountains of the Great West and spread over the Pacific coast from Panama to Alaska. The Valkyries were women. They were the most terrible of all. No woman was eligible for membership who had not lost near relatives at the hands of the oligarchy. They were guilty of torturing their prisoners to death. Another famous organization of women was the Widows of War. A companion organization to the Valkyries was the Berserkers. These men placed no value whatever upon their own lives, and it was they who totally destroyed the great mercenary city of Bologna, along with its population of over a hundred thousand souls. The Bedlamites and the Heldamites were twin slave organizations, while a new religious sect that did not flourish long was called the Wrath of God. Among others, to show the whimsicality of their deadly seriousness, may be mentioned the following, the Bleeding Hearts, Sons of the Morning, the Morning Stars, the Flamingos, the Triple Triangles, the Three Bars, the Rubonics, the Vindicators, the Comanches, and the Erebusites. These misguided people sacrificed their own lives wantonly, very often making our own plans go astray and retarded our organization. And through it all moved the Iron Heel, impassive and deliberate, shaking up the whole fabric of the social structure in its search for the comrades, combing out the mercenaries, the labor castes, and all its secret services, punishing without mercy and without malice, suffering in silence all retaliations that were made upon it, and filling the gaps in its fighting line as fast as they appeared. And hand in hand with this, Ernest and the other leaders were hard at work reorganizing the forces of the revolution. The magnitude of the task may be understood when it is taken into... Note. This is the end of the Everhard manuscript. It breaks off abruptly in the middle of a sentence. She must have received warning of the coming of the mercenaries, for she had time safely to hide the manuscript before she fled or was captured. It is to be regretted that she did not live to complete her narrative, for then, undoubtedly, would have been cleared away the mystery that has shrouded for seven centuries the execution of Ernest Everhard.
End of chapter 25. Recording by Matt Saw. Montreal. MattSaw.org. End of the Iron Heel by Jack London.